0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. So a couple of quick thoughts. If by chance you haven't been baptized, you realize, hey, I'm ready for a brand new start. Would you just think about being baptized next weekend? We already have a bunch of people signed up. I love the idea of being baptized at Easter. In fact, for about 400 years, that was the only time that Christian churches would baptize people. Because for them, it was so significant that you were buried with Christ and raised to new life. The same day that Jesus was raised to new life. So if you want to do that, if you're online, we're trying to figure out how to help people online be baptized. But like there's some suggestions on how to do that. If you're going to be here in the buildings area or out in Sydney, um, just let somebody know. You can check online or even the, the table, the Welcome Center out there. I'd love to see people baptized. So we are going to talk about the death of Jesus today. This is Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter we we're going to jump ahead in our series. We've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes about two things. One, the good news of the gospel. And he writes about the death of Jesus. And then he also talks about the resurrection. And so next week, I'm very excited to walk us through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the latter half, where Paul presents this idea that is. It is unique among every religion in the world. It is an absolutely beautiful thought that human death is not the end of you, that one day you will be like, Paul uses this analogy. He goes, you're just like a seed right now. This body that you have, it's like a seed that one day is gonna be planted and then it's gonna be resurrected and you're gonna be awoken. He says, he doesn't even use the term death. He says, you'll fall asleep. So some of us like, we're like we're gonna take a long nap, right? And it's in our near future, some of us hopefully it's in a way. But one day, you know what's gonna wake me up? Is the return of Jesus in a trumpet. And what comes out of that hole in the ground is gonna be really incredible. You think you're good now? You just wait. You just wait. So before we get that though, let's talk about the death of Jesus. And here's what I love in the first eight verses of First Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is really helping the Corinthian believers to connect with the why, the why behind Jesus' death. So most everybody would say, well, yeah, I know something about Jesus, and I know that he died on a cross. And then people believe he resurrected. But why is that special? Because humans have a 100% mortality rate, right? Every human being has died. Why would the death of this man, Jesus, change history. Why would people still be talking about the death of Jesus 2000 years later? Why is it such a big deal? And Paul's going to help connect them with that. So let's read together from first Corinthians chapter 15 verses one through eight. And I'll just bring out two points and we're going to do a little history lesson in the middle. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, I love this word. We're going to come back to this, remind you of the gospel or the good news. I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand, All right, This has changed everything. By this good news, this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So if you don't receive it, take your stand on it and hold on to it, your first belief is actually kind of empty, it's in vain, for what i received so paul received it too i passed on to you as of first importance this is this is the big deal he's saying that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, also known as Peter, and then to the 12, the 12 original apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. There's this term for death, fallen asleep. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if you were reading this in 52, 53 AD when it's written. The, if, you, if you traveled back to Jerusalem, you would be able to find hundreds of people who were still alive, who had seen the resurrected Jesus. You'd be able to say, hey, tell me that story again. Like you, you literally watched him die and then he was buried and then you watched him resurrect and then you, you watched him ascend into heaven. Like this was a literal historical fact. Then he appeared to James. Interestingly, this is the only reference in the whole New Testament we have to this. James is the brother of Jesus. We don't have it recorded anywhere else, but James saw his brother resurrected and it changed his life. And James then becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. So Paul didn't have a typical route into leading the church. He was opposed. He was never exposed to the person of Jesus. He tried to destroy the church until in Acts chapter 9, he has a face to face encounter with Jesus Christ that knocks him on his backside. And then he changes everything. And I love this. He appeared to me as one abnormally born. Anybody feel weird? Like if you feel like, I don't know, I just don't fit in, you're in good company, you're with Paul. Paul says, my route into faith was not normal. I had this abnormal resistance to Jesus, and then I had an abnormal experience with Jesus, which has led to me writing to you. So let's divide this up into two parts. Number one, let's talk about what God has done, what God has done, the good news. What is the gospel? I touched on this briefly last week, But why did we even come up with this phrase, good news? In uh, Greek, it was known as euangelion, which literally meant the good news, the greatest news. So here's how people lived in Corinth and in the Roman Empire in the first century. There were a pantheon of gods, multiple gods. And the Roman and the Greek gods, existed even before the Roman Empire. They had melded the whole group together. So now you had even more gods. And the basics were this, is that the gods were not always kind and they were not always benevolent. In fact, they used human beings as pawns. If you read any of the Greek classics, the gods would use human beings to accomplish their purposes. And here's the fundamental thing. The gods were typically very angry with human beings. And so you lived under this cloud That it was your job to appease the wrath of the gods. Because if you did not appease their wrath, they would punish you. Or they would just simply withhold blessing. Which meant this. In their minds, if my crops failed, if my business was failing, if I had financial crisis, if there was physical sickness in my home, if there was relational strife, the reason was that I had not appeased the wrath of the gods. And therefore, they are allowing me to experience this pain as a form of punishment. And think, every culture out there, gods are always angry. And your job is through sacrifice, giving, worship, prayer, whatever it might be, is that you appease their wrath so that the gods will treat you kindly. That's what all human beings had lived under. And along comes Jesus. And he says this. You no longer have to be afraid of God. That if human beings are here and God's over there, and if you went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible, you read that when human beings chose independence, when they chose disobedience, autonomy from God, it created death and separation. You and I were designed to walk with our creator, to know him intimately, but because of human failure, now there's this chasm, there's difference between us and God, and we could never bridge the gap. And this idea that Jesus came and stood in the gap and died for us, and now you no longer have to be afraid of God. You do not owe him anything. Anything. Jesus paid for it all. You can now live in harmony with God. You can live with a clear conscience. You can live knowing somebody paid for my sins. Well, when the first century people heard that, that's what they called good news. That is the most amazing news possible. The God, is is, he's not against us. He's not frustrated with us. Everything was poured out on Jesus and dealt with. So that's the good news. And what Paul says is, I need to remind you of this. I need to remind you of this. Because here's the problem. I've been following Jesus for years. And if you are not careful, you get caught up in the system of going to church and Christianity. And if you aren't careful, your faith becomes an ethics basis. Or it becomes the basis for which you deal with social injustice and challenges. It becomes simply a worldview, And Paul is saying this, to a church that is probably only two years old, you already have to be reminded of the good news, of what this is all about. This is not about another religious system. This is not another way to live your life, some new ethical system. This is about the good news that God has intervened on our behalf and there is now forgiveness and there is hope and the wrath of God has been dealt with once and for all in its entirety. Be reminded of that. This week as we walk through the, uh, the, the week where we remember the death and crucifixion of Jesus, be reminded of that of the gospel. Someone died for you. Paul says, and you want to know that it's by the gospel that you are actually saved. So you can't, I mean, this is part of the good news. You can't save yourself. You you and I can't be good enough. We, We can't like avoid mistakes and live this perfectly surrendered life. The gospel is that Jesus did that. He lived a perfect life And that's how we're saved. The gospel brings about salvation. What are we saved from? We're saved from an eternity separated from God. But we're not just saved from something. We're saved to something new. You're saved into the kingdom of God. We're saved into hope that there's now a new purpose to be a part of what God is doing here on planet earth. Here's what else he says about the the gospel. As he says, it's an ongoing process. So we typically think about being saved as historical. So if, if you're new in your faith or spiritually unresolved, this would be new to you. But like, we'll sit down together, people follow Jesus, and I'll go like, hey, Will, when were you saved? And Will will look backwards in his history, and he'll say, well, you know, like in uh, 2003, I had this experience. This was the beginning point. And that's beautiful and true, but Paul never talks about being saved in past tense. He always uses present tense. So part of the gospel is this, is that I am in process all of the time. It wasn't just this one moment. No, I am being changed and shaped and challenged and renewed and refined. I'm being turned into the person that God had always intended for me to be. And he is dealing with the pain and the struggles and the emptiness to renew me day by day by day. So the gospel is this, you are being saved. This is part of the gospel is this idea that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And here's where I want to take a little bit of a historical perspective because what does that mean? Because remember, Paul's going to help us understand why the death of Jesus meant so much. What does it mean according to the scriptures? Well, Paul says that he's referring to the ancient Jewish scriptures. Everything, if you have a Bible before the book of Matthew, is what Paul's referring to. And so there's this concept that sin had to be dealt with. And what I'm about to say, I want you to know, some of you is going to make you a little bit queasy because we're going to talk about blood and sacrifice, and it is not fun to listen to. But this is what Paul's saying when Christ died for sins according to the Scripture. Number one, he's referring to the ancient sacrificial system. So again, going back to Genesis chapter three, when human beings rebelled and this distance developed between us and God, what is the first thing that Adam and Eve felt? Discomfort and shame. They were able, previous to this, to just walk with God and not feel awkward, But as soon as they die spiritually, they rebel against God, they are overcome by the sense of deep inadequacy. We don't feel comfortable with God. We feel ashamed. They don't feel comfortable with each other. And so the very first sacrifice appears to be this in Genesis chapter 3. is because of this prevalent shame, God takes animal life and creates coverings for them. just just so that you can even handle being close to me, something died so that Adam and Eve wouldn't feel as ashamed. And then if you follow the Old Testament through, there's this sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system is very foreign to all of us, but basically it was this. where you know that you have failed, you would take an animal, if you were very poor, it could be a pigeon. Um, if you were wealthy, it could be a bull. Most of the time, it was sheep and goats. And you would take a young animal that was as genetically perfect as possible. So that meant in an agrarian society, it was very meaningful. This is the animal that you want to extend its genetics into your herd. But you would take that animal and you would travel all the way to the tabernacle or later to the temple. And you would look at a priest and you would say, I have failed. I have failed. And the priest would take your animal and would sacrifice it and burn most of the animal. And it would be the same sense that they had in Genesis chapter 3. As painful as that was, something died to pay a price for my mistakes. And then you would walk away feeling as if this guilt and shame had been alleviated. There were two major ceremonies, the two highest ceremonies in Jewish culture that will help us understand what Paul says, Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. The first would be the high holy day of Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement. And on the day of atonement, several interesting things happened. One would be the high priest would go into the holy of holies in the temple. And it's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and nobody could go in there except for the high priest. One day, you're on the day of atonement, And he would make sacrifices for the sins of the people. But kind of the highlight of the day was this, is that the high priest with all the nation gathered around, two goats would be led to him. One goat would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And the other goat, this this is very, very important. The other goat, the priest would stand in front of the nation with his hands outstretched. And he would metaphorically absorb the failings of that last year onto himself. So everybody in the nation who had failed in whatever way it might be, he would take the sins and then he would take his hands and put them on the head of the goat. And this is the phrase he would speak. The sins of the nation be upon you. This is the term scapegoat. That this goat would absorb the sins of every human being for that past year. And then that goat would be led out into the wilderness. And as the people watch, this sense of temporary reprieve, my sin is upon that goat. And that goat is led out into the wilderness, never to return. As you watch the goat walk away, you feel like I have a clean start. I have a new beginning. What was done in the past has been dealt with. Now the other high holiday that according to the scriptures would refer to was the Feast of Passover. Passover and Easter are linked together. Jesus died during the Passover, he was resurrected just after that. In order to help us understand Passover, help us understand why it was so important that Jesus died, I wanna show you a picture here. Uh, this is a model of the temple in Jerusalem. Someday, I hope we all get to go to Israel together. This is actually at the Jerusalem Museum, and it's a model reconstruction because, of course, this now has been overtaken, and you have one of the high Muslim um, places of worship here. So in this far right-hand corner, this was the fortress of Antonia. So (laughs) when the Romans had taken over Jerusalem, they were so frustrated because they were never allowed into the temple courts they're forbidden cuz they weren't Jews. And so um, one of the Roman governors decided, "You know what we're going to do? Is we're going to build a huge fortress where we will station our troops and we're going to build it 1 meter taller than the temple." Just to just to prove like Rome's bigger than your god. Now, interestingly enough, when the Passover happened, From this tower right here, Pontius Pilate and his historian writes that he set up a high chair, and it was his observatory where he could look down into the temple courts and watch what took place during the Passover. So here's what the Passover looked like. It had been celebrated for 1,400 years, and it commemorated that years before, 1,400 years before Jesus, the people had been slaves in Egypt. They've been oppressed. They've been dehumanized. And God shows up through Moses, begins the deliverance process. And the final, the final thing that brought deliverance was this. God said, there is a judgment that is going to move throughout the land of Egypt. And this judgment is going to result in the death of every firstborn male. But there is a way out. There is a way to not experienced this death. And it was simply this. You took a lamb, the most genetically pure lamb you could find. You took its life. You took the blood that was collected and you went to the exterior of your home and you put the blood around the doorposts. And then when death moves from the city, every household that had the blood of the Passover lamb was passed over. There was no judgment, there was freedom. Then for 1400 years, the Jews celebrated the Passover. They took a lamb, every household. So in the first century, when Jesus is about to die, the population of Jerusalem has swollen to about two million people. Okay, from about 350,000 to two million people because every male who is 20 years and older was responsible to come for the Passover and was responsible to bring their family. On the 14th of Nissan, Nissan is roughly equivalent to our month of April. It was the Passover. So you have 2 million people, you have a minimum of 20,000 Passover lambs that are all going to be sacrificed on the 14th of Nissan. And here's what that would have looked like you would have gotten up early in the morning, you would take your lamb that has already been inspected. And been deemed unblemished. Unblemished. And then every male from the household would carry this lamb on their shoulders, and you would line up outside of the temple. In the center of the temple is a burning altar, burning throughout the days. On the portico is a choir of 100 men. There were 500 men total in this choir along with instruments and these men would sing for a half hour at the top of their voice and they'd be replaced by then another 100 men. So for over eight hours, you would wait in line and when it was finally your turn to enter into the temple courts, you would bring your your lamb and there would be 40 priests lined up. 40 Passover lambs were slaughtered every minute. Every minute. And you would walk forward with your Passover lamb. The priest would take your Passover lamb, cut his throat, collect a cup of the blood. Then the blood would be handed from one priest to another down a line until it came here and it was thrown onto the fire and burned up. You then took the carcass of the Passover lamb home to your family and along with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, wine, and you had to eat the entirety of your Passover lamb by the time the sun arose and dawned. On the 14th of Nisan, is when Jesus dies. When Paul says, according to the scriptures, he is tying together the death of Jesus with the ultimate problem of human failure and sin. Paul is saying this. Jesus came to his father and said, I will live the life, the unblemished life that no human being could live. And the Father says, the sins of the world be upon you. Not just those who are alive in 33 AD. The sin of every human being who had lived before. The sin of every human being who would be alive in the future. The sin of the world be upon you. And Jesus then goes to the cross as the ultimate and final Passover lamb. Absorbing my failure, being the unblemished sacrifice, forgiving and dealing with sin and shame for all time. On the cross, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lamak shabakhthanai, which means this, it's such a disturbing thing to read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as the perfect human being, absorbs all of our shame and inadequacy and failure and takes it upon himself as the Passover lamb. In part, that is what Paul means when he says that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. There's this word atonement Atonement, and it's not a word we use very often, but it, it, it comes from this adunamentum in Latin. And it means this, it's to establish unity or togetherness. Jesus was the atonement, the separation, in which there were temporary fixes and scapegoats and sacrifices and Passover lambs, but ultimately we're still separated from God. Jesus, through his death, fulfilling all of these ancient ceremonies, now brings us together with our creator. So it wasn't the sin of Jesus that was responsible for his death. It wasn't the Roman or the Jewish leaders that led him to be crucified. It was him absorbing my sin and your sin and the sin of every human being that has ever lived so that we could experience atonement coming back into harmony with our creator. So point number two is this. How do we respond? We're invited to respond to this good news. Paul lays it out. And here's what he says to the people in Corinth. He says, here's your three points of response. Number one, you received it. You received it. So the the story of Jesus could be heard. You, You could like hear the story of Jesus over and over, but somewhere along the line, I have to decide, do I receive this? Because there's only two options. You either reject it or you receive it. And maybe some of us, you're in that place right now. You're online, you're in the room, and you're saying, man, I'm I'm asking good questions. Here's what is in your future. You're going to have to decide, do I receive this? Do I say, this is true? This is the narrative by which I understand life, that there really is nothing I can do about my own sin, that Jesus had to do something for me. Do you receive it? Paul said he received it, and then it's something that is passed on. The second thing would be this. Not only do I receive it, But I have to take my stand. Take my stand. He says, not only did you receive this, but you took your stand, meaning you thought, this is now what I establish my life upon. My decisions will flow through this idea of the good news. My ethics, what I do with my money, what I do with my freedom, will all emanate from this place where I've I've taken... A stand. This is where I've rooted the entirety of my life. And he says, The third thing that you need to do to the people in Corinth is he says, You need to hold firmly to this word. You just hold on to it because apparently what's happening, we get this from other clues in Corinthians, that these people have only been following Jesus for a couple years, but some of them are discouraged because, well, guess what? They're facing sickness, they're facing rejection. Their families are saying, what in the world are you doing? You're leaving these ancient gods that have worked so well for our empires. And now you're going to follow some Jewish rabbi we've never heard of. And so they're experiencing all this pain, all these things that they didn't expect. And here's what Paul says. Just hold firmly. I, I can't help. I'm a rodeo guy. I've never ridden a bull, but I've always wanted to. But my wife tells me that time has passed. But when you're strapped in, it's all about holding on. And there's some expectations that haven't been met. And here's what Paul says. You are holding on even when it gets tough. You just grab onto the gospel. You realize you cannot save yourself. You just hold on to Jesus and what he did for you. You receive it. You take your stand. You hold firmly and then this very disturbing thing paul says because if you don't do that whatever you believe is in vain it just doesn't bring about anything there's an emptiness but if you can hold on to that gospel take your stand and receive it it means the world changes for you now typically i like to be thoughtful of how to conclude things but earlier this week as i was trying to wrap up some notes i just felt it would be important for me to stay silent and for me just to read three sections of scripture. These are all from the book of Hebrews and Hebrews deals to great extent with the death and the the sacrifice of Jesus. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read from Hebrews chapter nine, two sections and one from Hebrews chapter 10. And let these just speak to you, okay? He, meaning Jesus, did not enter the holy place by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We are saved to a new future. Verse 26, but he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the culmination of ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Think of that, to do away with it by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of the many And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, not to be the scapegoat, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And finally, Hebrews chapter 10, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Why did Jesus' death matter? Because it changed everything. The world will never be the same. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.